0: You're listening to the SSPX Podcast. This is part two of Father Mackin's Catechism series, produced especially for children who are not able to make it to catechism classes otherwise, and it's a continuation on the Fourth Commandment. If you are at all able to help support the work of the Society of St. Pius X during this time, uh, please know that it does take resources, it takes hosting fees and bandwidth, and uh, technical equipment to help produce these podcasts and the live stream uh, masses that you are able to View every day. So if you are at all able, please visit sspx.gifts, that's sspx.gifts, and please make a donation. If you're not able to, of course, that's uh, perfectly fine, but you can still help the work of this apostolate by telling a friend about this podcast or by subscribing or by leaving a rating uh, on this podcast. Doing that will help more people to be able to find the SSPX podcast in their own podcast feeds or programs. With that out of the way, now here's Father Mackin with part two of Fourth Commandment.
1: Well, hello and welcome. This is Father Mackin for another lesson out of my Catholic faith. Today, we're going to be looking at chapters 104 and 105. It is the continuation of the Fourth Commandment. Uh, We saw the Fourth Commandment, in fact, in great detail in the previous lesson, and so now we will see it in even more detail. Uh, It is amazing, in fact, just how much Uh, lessons and and teachings of the church we can discover in each of these commandments books volumes and volumes have been written uh, for each commandment so that is why taking a deeper look at these commandments is certainly a good thing now you know of course that the fourth commandment is is the first commandment which deals with the love and respect that we're supposed to have toward our neighbor and, of course, it tells us specifically to honor thy father and mother. Of course, in this section, we're going to look at uh, superiors. We're going to look at the love and the respect and the obedience that is owed towards, um, towards the state, towards one's country, um, towards religious superiors, etc. So before we start, I wanted to um, begin with a story. The story, in fact, goes back to uh, England in the English history, where we we read about a story of a holy bishop who came over from France in order to help England, who at the time uh, were fighting against heresies uh, within their, their country, the heresies that were disturbing the peace of the church, you might say. And while the bishop was there working among the British, um, these pagans who were actually from Scotland, uh, these Scots, they had risen up and they launched an attack against England. The Britons begged this, uh, this saintly bishop uh, to help them because of the skills that this saintly bishop had in his previous career, you might say. Uh, it was shortly after Easter, when a little band of Christians set forth in order order to stop the invading heathens. And at their head was this holy bishop, his name, Saint Germain. He had once been, in fact, a brave and skillful military leader. And so he asked the soldiers, he asked them, number one, he said, you must keep best possible order. He believed in discipline. Discipline will win the day, he said. And he said that as soon as they would see the enemy, that they must repeat as loud as they can the battle cry that he would teach them. And so the, the army, this little group of Christians, not too many in number, um, promised their general, their saintly bishop, that they would follow him. No sooner than they saw the Scots that were showing themselves for, for battle, um, then the saintly bishop, Germain, raised with a loud voice and gave them their battle cry. And what was that battle cry? It was the word Alleluia. And of course, it's Easter time. And what does this word mean, really? It means praise you the Lord is what it means. And immediately after this, the, the Alleluia was shouted by the bishop. All the army took it up and they kept repeating Alleluia, Alleluia. And they, they yelled it so loud that the mountains echoed with a thundering cry. And the barbarian invaders were astonished. They were confused. And in fact, they took off. And they took off to their heels in wild disorder, and Saint Germain and his tiny army won the day without even the shedding of of, of a drop of blood. And you, it's a great story to for us to remember that. Obviously, number one, the Alleluia has always been a cry of victory for the followers of Christ, um, but also just that example of of discipline, discipline to. Uh, to those who are over you uh, Whether it be ecclesiastical Or in this case It was a unique combination of, of a bishop But also one who had been trained As a military leader And so we understand that In order to to win In order to have victory um, There must be obedience There must be a, 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 a Obedience and honor To those who are in charge Another story, if you would permit me Or illustration Is um, to to sort of instruct us on what should be the sentiments or, or the love of a statesman or, or a citizen uh, for his country uh, can be seen in, in a story that goes back, in fact, with our own country, the beginning of the American Revolution. It was during that time uh, that George Washington had just recently been appointed the commander in chief of the American army. And George Washington, he discovered that there were English troops that were shut up in the city of Boston. And so Americans then surrounded the town of Boston. And it was obvious that the English that were trapped there had little food. Um, But Washington then sent a letter to Congress suggesting that Boston would be bombarded. And as the message was read, a, a tense silence fell over the assembly, we're told. And why? Well, because the then presiding officer, whose name was John Hancock... Had considerable real estate in this town of Boston. Uh, you know, he had invested a lot of money in in homes and 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 uh, and businesses there, and so it was clear that if um, the the town was bombarded, um, Hancock would probably lose most, if not all, of his property. And so it was, um, it was again. There was this this. Tense silence that fell over the assembly, but then Hancock arose and Hancock himself addressed the assembly in these words. He said quote, "It is true that nearly all my property in the world is in the houses and other buildings in the town of Boston, but if driving out the British army and the liberties of our country require it being burned to ashes, then issue the order for that purpose immediately. And so we see there that's the, the sentiment you might say of a true statesman, of a true citizen willing to lose even personal property for the good of his country. And that ought to be the sentiments of every true American. You know, it was JFK, in fact, uh, who famously coined the expression, "Ask not what your country can do for you. Of what you can do for your country, you know, this, this, is, this is what the church teaches. And the fourth commandment, believe it or not, even extends to the love of one's country. Uh, so in this chapter, maybe we'll even see what is true patriotism, the sense of true patriotism. Okay, so now let's jump into this chapter 104, 105 of My Catholic Faith, where we're going to see, um, here are some of the questions that we're going to see. Uh, what are the chief duties of those elected to public office? How should public officials promote the general welfare of the country? We're also gonna see what are the main duties of superiors. We're gonna obviously see what is forbidden by the fourth commandment. We're gonna see what are the duties of a citizen towards his country. Um, we're also gonna see how does, it, how does a citizen show sincere interest in his country's welfare? You know, like that patriotism that we were alluding to in the story. Uh, why must we obey and respect lawful authorities in our country? Uh, And this is certainly a good time to ask that question with uh, the shelter in place and quarantine laws that are, in fact, in in nearly all 50 states. um, To what degree do we give the benefit of doubt to law, even if we might not agree uh, if it is a lawful uh, command? And finally, we're going to see what uh, why are we obliged to take um, to take part in active works of good citizenship? Um, two other questions that I would like to add in there is going to be the questions concerning um, the obligation to vote and also the death penalty. So we'll look at those two questions and maybe some of the controversy that can surround those questions. Uh, so let's start. So the first um, question then in My Catholic Faith in Chapter 104 um, is what are the chief duties of those who hold public office? And you see there on the outline, if you're following along, it says that those who hold public office must be just to all in exercising their authority and to promote the general welfare. Now, of course, um, public officials, they, they have a grave responsibility before God. This includes judges and legislators, senators, governors, uh, presidents, whoever, um, from the lowest to the highest, and all shall render a strict account before God for their public actions. It says in the book of Wisdom, chapter six, a most severe judgment quote, will be for those who bear rule. Um, so it's obvious that you know another point that we're seeing in here is that no one should run for an office in which he's not competent to fulfill. You know, and this this comes down to the the very fact that you know there 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 is demanded a set of talents and also uh, leadership skills um, that not everybody has. Obviously, some are meant to rule and others are meant to be governed. Um, The third point we're seeing under under this question is that public officials should prove their honor by acts of virtue in office, which obviously can be seen by them accomplishing the duties connected to their position. Uh, The My Catholic Faith book gives a wonderful example about how King Herod, obviously, while he was very wealthy and he was hailed as the king of the empire— um, and And he was a, the, one of the most important men alive, and yet he was so far from God, and yet at the same time, uh, Joseph and Mary, they were the among the poorest, um, and they were insignificant in the eyes of the world, and yet, look, they were the closest to the heart of God. So again, we should remember um, that the world usually gets it, gets it wrong those the, the corruption that is usually the case because of our fallen nature, um, normally in this life, uh, those who will be in the most important exalted positions of honor, typically, are not the most virtuous ones. And it's a shame, because it, it, it ought not to be that way. Um, it says in the book of Matthew, uh, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And again, that was Matthew chapter 20. Uh, and the last point we're going to see under this first question is that public officials should set a good example because their actions will be seen by all. I mean, imagine the news constantly is, reco- is uh, reporting on the behavior of public officials. And it's such a source of scandal when you see public officials uh, who are breaking the, the very laws that they're supposed to be promoting and and protecting. And we see that hypocrisy um, today more than ever, perhaps because the media and the news has never been more a part of our life, uh, since we're all so connected to the internet these days. Um, But also just that lack of integrity for the office in which uh, these men and now women represent. Uh, So we've come a long way from the Catholic rulers of Christendom you know, I think of the great St. Louis the Ninth, who was the king of France. Um, Louis the Ninth had it all, you might say. He was the ideal ruler, and here's why. Not only was he a brilliant man, an excellent leader, and a, and a tremendous organizer, uh, but he was also a virtuous man, and he was a devout Catholic. And the story has it that every morning the king would attend, if not serve, um, the Holy Mass uh, every single morning in his king's chapel. And so that's, that's a beautiful illustration. What a wonderful scene to see the king of, of a country such as France on his knees every morning, beginning his day, receiving on his tongue the king of kings and, and, and pledging his obedience uh, and, and, and love uh, towards Christ, who is the true king of the universe. Uh, now we move on to the second question. How should public officials promote the general welfare? It says that public officials should promote the general welfare um by passing good and just laws to obviously help spread good and and on the contrary to inflict punishment on wrongdoers. So it's it's a twofold obligation when we say for the general welfare. It's not just um you know to to pass laws, but also it's it's to it's to inflict punishment upon those who are who are breaking those laws. Um, these public officials, they represent God. They represent God in the civil realm. And so they obviously should imitate his justice. Now, God is obviously merciful, but he's also just. Officials should not favor one class over another, but rather should treat all equally. The rich should be treated together with the poor. The same standards of law should be given to everyone. Um... You know th- this is very unfortunate for our own times, where we see you know politicians or or the people who are millionaires, very rich, wealthy, and well known people often seem to get a different style of justice uh, than those who perhaps are poor or who are marked as conservative or who are Christian. seems to be a, a different tier of justice that is that is shown uh, to the other side uh, officials it says should should strive to to have, to look over the poor and the orphans of this world in a special way. And also officials have a serious obligation to promote Christian um, principles in their country's constitution, especially uh, principles of law, which would protect the Lord's day, the Sabbath, which obviously means Sunday, uh, as well as the family life and the Christian marriage. Uh, the third question we're going to see now is what are the duties of a superior? And we're going to look at these in general. Um, in general, superiors must provide um, for both the spiritual as well as the material welfare of those over whom uh, they control. It's just like parents. Parents are superiors over their children. They have to take care of their physical needs, but also their spiritual needs. So the those who are you know, uh, civil officials have the same obligation. We can look at uh, employers, for instance. Employers must be just with their workers, okay, not holding back their wages um, and, 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 you know, a, paying them what we call a just salary or, or a living wage. What is a living wage? Well, a living wage is that, that um, you know, amount of money which is going to allow a family to live in, in a decent condition, not necessarily to have a, you know, four, four cars and, and a huge mansion. That's not what we mean as a, in living in decent conditions. Now we're going to move on to the, the question, what does the fourth commandment forbid? And of course, I, I think of the, uh, the children especially should pay attention during uh, this question. Um, so the fourth commandment, it forbids all disrespect and disobedience to lawful superiors. So this disrespect this, this that we're talking about includes any type of display of irreverence, such as even talking back to one's parents. Um, or unkindness uh, is also against the love that we should owe our parents, so that a child who would curse at his, parent, at his parents or hate them would truly sin against the fourth commandment. You know, and we should remind ourselves, you know, all of us. Anyone who's going to yell back at his parents should be absolutely ashamed of themselves. Think of the next time you do that, that your parents were the ones who provided you everything in life, including life itself. Uh, it says in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, quote, He that curseth his father or mother dying, let him die the death. Uh, so that is, a, um, that is like a curse, you might say, from the Old Testament on those who would dare try and curse their own parents. Um, And thirdly, under this, um, what does the fourth commandment forbid? We can say that a child would sin against uh, the fourth commandment if he refuses a command from his parents. Uh, What type of command? Well, let's just say that the parents say that you're supposed to study now and you refuse, or maybe you're forbidden to hang around certain friends or bad companions, and you went ahead and, and, and secretly met up with those people. That would be refusing a command from your parents, and yes, that would be sinful. Now let's move on to the fifth question, uh, which, we're gonna, which we see in the book. What are the duties of a citizen toward his country? Um, here we're going to see that a citizen must love his country and respect and obey its laws. So obviously God gave us our country. God has provided it, and we therefore should love it. In fact, we have a grave obligation to pray for our country uh, and to show our country you know, the, the degree of respect and love that we can. Um, nevertheless, it is true that one's love of country must always be subject to the laws of God. You know, I always think of the story of the great St. Thomas More, um, who was a devout patriot. He loved his country, England, and he loved serving um, the, the king as chancellor, and yet he was put in a situation where he could not love his country or love the king more than God. And so you know in his, um, he was martyred, he was executed for for disobeying the king and in his last words on earth, uh, he he said famously, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. And that should be certainly, it should be all of our attitude towards our country. Um, but nevertheless, we really should have cultivate among ourselves, among those who are under us, uh, children, etc., we should cultivate a, a true love of our of country. Now it seems to be an appropriate moment to tell another story. Uh, this is, in fact, one of, the, one of my favorite stories, and it's um, about a hero in World War II, of course there were many heroes in World War II, um, but one was a Catholic Navy chaplain by the name of Father Aloysius Schmidt. And Father Schmidt, uh, on December the seventh, nineteen forty-one, he was on the battleship of the Oklahoma, which was uh, obviously docked there at Pearl Harbor, uh, when all of a sudden they were attacked in the early morning hours on that Sunday morning. Father was just finishing mass, in fact, in the in, in the um, below below deck in the boat um, when about hundred and fifty men that were on the boat hurried to their battle stations. All the hatches and all the portholes were locked, and the ship. Obviously, therefore, um, was taking in water, and the men could not escape. And so, obviously, the, t- the ship started tipping badly um, because of the the explosion. And the padre uh, was was there below, um, trying his hardest to push uh, his men, like sardines, uh, through this corridor or the hallway of one of this one of the small openings, with almost superhuman strength. A sailor shouldered open a hatch far enough for someone to go through, and and he yelled as the padre was pushing all these guys through. They they got a bunch of men through, and finally they turned around and, and they were trying to get their their father through, and uh, and unfortunately father couldn't fit through the hole, and so while he tried and saved successfully saved many of the lives of his own men, uh, he could not save his own life, and so the sailors were forced to watch as the the hole filled up with water and their father died their uh their father schmidt whom they loved greatly and so it's it's a story that perhaps it it captures a little bit of everything captures the the sacrificial love of a priest obviously for the souls that are entrusted to him Uh, greater love than this no man hath than to lay down his life Uh, and it also captures that uh, spirit of patriotism Because obviously, Father Schmidt was a Navy chaplain. He was serving in the armed forces, um, taking care of the spiritual needs of his men. But obviously, uh, as a Navy chaplain, it's proof that even the church allows her priests to serve in the military, Um, which, again, furthers this lesson about love of country. So moving on to the sixth question, how does a citizen show his sincere interest in his country? Well, a citizen shows sincere interest in his country by voting honestly, by paying taxes, and defending his country's rights whenever necessary. So, yes, we do have an obligation um, to vote. And when we vote, we obviously should be voting for those candidates who not only have experience, but are also known for their Christian principles. Um, I'd like to point out that every Catholic, actually, who, who has the right to vote should do so even if it's only for the purpose of helping the good candidate uh, to, to lose by less votes. You know, so obviously, and, and this is in the outline, it says it pretty clear, that a Catholic who votes for someone who is hostile to Christian principles will have much to answer for that. Those who cannot vote ought to pray for the best candidate to win, and that best candidate would be the one who can promote uh, the general welfare. We can see an example, obviously, like the Good Samaritan in the, in the story of the Bible, who obviously was taking care of the man who fell by the robbers. When these other prominent you know, Pharisees and even um, priests and, and all would pass up this poor man that had been injured and was laying out there and was in serious need, it was, a, it was a Samaritan who stopped along the way and who helped him. And you might say that in our present situation, no one is more helpless than a baby in the, in the womb. And that is why a Catholic who votes for a candidate who is pro-abortion uh, commits a mortal sin. A Catholic voter should also inquire carefully into the candidate that he's about to, to vote for to make sure that, that you know the candidate's views on, on life, marriage, and the family um, be in accord with the Christian doctrine. Now, it may happen, and often does in our country, that all the candidates are, are not ideal, in which case a Catholic voter... Um, must vote for the one who is least hostile to religion. Uh, in terms of taxes, uh, as much as, as we absolutely hate paying taxes, we are bound to pay just tax. Our, our Lord himself said in Scripture, uh, render to Caesar things that, that are Caesar's. And so it's only just that a citizen contribute towards the maintenance of peace, order, good works, and military in his country, all of which benefit us in many ways. Uh, and finally, just a quick comment on just war. Um, yes, men should be ready for military service in the defense of their country in the moment of a just war. Now, of course, that could be a whole other catechism on what means uh, a just war, and we will say that for another time. Um, now moving on to another question. This is the seventh question. Why must we respect and obey lawful authority of our country? Well, in short, we must respect and obey lawful authority because it comes from God. That's why. It says in the book of Proverbs that God, you know, it's by God that kings reign and that lawmakers decree just things. So therefore, God has willed that in human society, uh, some will rule and others will be ruled. It's God's will. It's also true that we should be loyal to our civil officials and pray for them and You might say it would be a sin to plot against your country and against your government. Treason is always a crime. It's a crime against God, and it's a crime against our fellow man. The eighth question, um, which really is the last question of these two chapters, why are we obliged, it says, to take active part in good citizenship? Well, we're obliged to take active part in good works for the benefit of our country and because its right reason requires that citizens should work together for the public welfare of the country. So therefore, yes, citizens should pull together and promote good works. Now, I told you there would be two additional questions that I was hoping to explore, um, one concerning the the obligation to vote and the other concerning uh, the death penalty. So to the first question, which is, can a Catholic vote for someone who is pro-abortion or pro-choice? Uh, The simple answer is no, obviously. A Catholic, in normal circumstances, cannot vote for someone who is pro-abortion. However, uh, it may happen that all the candidates are, to some degree, pro-abortion. And so this brings up the question on whether there is ever a moment in which um, a Catholic can vote for a pro-choice candidate so as to limit the evil of another candidate. And in this case, a Catholic who himself is opposed to any and all abortions and one who makes every effort to avoid causing scandal may, in fact, cast his vote for an unsuitable candidate to limit the circumstances in which abortion is legal. So it's a little complicated. I I get that. Um, But and, you know, we shouldn't look at this vote as as though I'm voting for the lesser of two evils, right? But rather what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to limit evil to the best of my ability in this given moment. Now some would argue that father wouldn't it just be better not to vote at all in this case? But again, while we can understand the frustration of those people who ask that question that it would be better to not vote at all. It's also true that you know, we as voters, we as Christians, um we also have an obligation to help to help limit the spread of evil, and you might say it is our moral duty to promote the common good and the common welfare. And if for my voting for one candidate will help limit um, evil or the spread of evil, then it, it may be it may be an obligation that I that I would do so. We can, in fact, take a real example, which occurred in the 2016 presidential election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. You remember that Clinton was a well-known advocate for the most aggressive late-term abortion laws, and Trump, on the other hand, was opposed to abortion. I mean, He came out during the presidential debates and was very clear that he was a pro-life candidate. Um, He clearly states that he was pro-life, and therefore, uh, while he was far from perfect, Um, with, with other views that he had, you might say that he was the most viable candidate and should certainly have won the Catholic vote. Now, I, I realize that that question or, or the way I answered it may also be a little controversial to some, some people. But again, I, I, I think it's a reasonable approach that you, know, you, you have to work with what you got that is being offered in a, in a corrupt situation as we have with the law of Roe versus Wade being the rule of the land, which is so sad, uh, giving women and health care providers the right for abortion. How do we overturn this law? Uh, That is our ultimate goal, and therefore we have to win out the Supreme Court. But look at now what has happened with the election of Donald Trump. He has put already two Supreme Court justices uh, there who are very conservative and who are personally pro-life candidates. So it's very possible that uh, if uh, President Trump can continue to stack the Supreme Court, that in a few more years, we may see, in fact, Roe versus Wade be overturned. What a blessing that would be. Um, the other question I wanted to quickly look at is concerning the death penalty. So, can the state, does the state have a right to execute a criminal, um, who committed a, a wicked crime? Well, we can go back and and look at church doctrine, the tradition of the church, uh, going back to the Council of Trent, in fact. The Council of Trent states that that the country, that the state, has the power to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. And this comes from the state's obligation to protect the common good by repressing what we would say are outrage and violence. So the Sacred Council of Trent taught that in order to fulfill its end, which is the preservation and the security of human life, the state, in fact, it has the legal right to execute criminals for wicked crimes and to do so without, in fact, violating the fifth commandment. So the fifth commandment, which is thou shalt not kill, is not violated, because a part of that commandment, thou shalt not kill, is also the strict obligation to preserve life. And so if you look at it from that perspective, the state has the grave obligation to preserve life. And when horrible crimes are committed, especially those crimes against the innocents, against children or against women, uh, such as brutal murders or awful things that we might hear in the news, there does need to be a proportionate um, punishment that is given to the criminal because of that fifth commandment and the obligation of the state to preserve and to secure human life. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas teaches— that the death penalty is also an opportunity. It's an opportunity to help convert the criminal so that he might see the wickedness of his ways and change. And of course, as we know, if, if the criminal were to accept his, his sentence, his punishment with contrition, well, then that sentence may be a saving grace. It may be his uh, escape from purgatory, you might say, to expiate his crime, uh, for the sentence for his uh, crime in this life. Pope Pius XII, uh, taught that for certain crimes against the innocent, a criminal actually would deprive himself of the right to his own life. And that's, again, the teaching of Pope Pius XII. And in conclusion, we can say, well, what does the present pope teach, uh, Pope Francis? He's been in the news not too long ago because he asked for the revision of the church's catechism concerning the death penalty. Uh, pope Francis would rather it say that there's, that no matter how bad the crime is, The death penalty is always, in every case, inadmissible. And the reason that he gives is he says it's because of the dignity of the human person. The dignity of the human person. Um, The confusion here, you might say, is, is as though the Pope, and I say this with all due respect, it is as though the Pope is only looking at man from man's perspective. It's almost as though man is an end in himself or as though this life is the only life. We have to remember that, yes, we have an obligation to preserve our natural life, but we also have an obligation to preserve our supernatural life. And that is why uh, the traditional doctrine of the Catholic Church would support the death penalty, capital punishment in in some cases, because of that grave obligation um, for the to protect the next life, the supernatural life, which is in our soul. Well that'll be the conclusion then of the catechism, and I hope that you you all learned something. Perhaps we can end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall it be world without end. Amen. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Our Lady of Victory, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.